0: How many of you have been to more than one wedding in your life? Most of us, right? So it's probably true then that you are familiar with part of the passage we are looking at this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, This is called the love chapter oftentimes. And let's just jump in at verse 4. Maybe this is familiar to you. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. And if you read on, you see that verse eight begins with love never fails. Perhaps some translations say never ends. It's easy to see, isn't it, why this passage is so loved. It's got a poetic nature to it. It's got a beauty to it. Paul describes the very character of love. There's 15 verbs here. Open in verse 4 with these two core expressions of love. He says, love is patient. It also gets translated long-suffering. In fact, if you have an old King James Version, it says, love suffereth long, I think is how it's uh, put in the Old King James. It's this idea that that the nature of love has this forbearance about it, uh, that it's it's patient, it's waiting. Uh, the idea is in difficulty and also with difficult people. Right? Patience has an air of endurance to it. Love is patient. It's this idea of suffering for the sake of others. it's not something that just happens, does it? It takes intentionality. So love is patient, and love is also kind. Now, kind is the idea of showing mercy. It isn't a description of a feeling or romantic words, but it's this dynamic and intentional way of action towards other people with their goodness in mind. Goodness often they don't deserve. Kindness, I would say, is doing good for the sake of another person who doesn't deserve it. That's kindness. Love is kind. And if if you notice, that opening of verse 4 is really describing God's love. It's describing God's nature, that God is patient, that God is kind. The way God's loved humanity. Peter writes that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance, for all to be saved. God holds back divine wrath towards the sin of humanity. There's patience, and God's kindness is shown in innumerable ways through mercy through provision through goodness there's a reason this is a loved passage this picture of love but this morning i want us to dig a bit deeper into what paul has written here in chapter 13 i want to ask the question of why has he written this and why here and what does that mean for us practically so again paul writes love is patient and love is kind but then we get this long list of things love isn't Right? Love isn't envious. Love isn't boastful. Love isn't proud. Love doesn't dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. And love keeps no record of wrongs, which, by the way, is pretty hard to do, isn't it? Love does not delight in evil. These are all things love isn't. In fact, there's a number more isn'ts than ises, if you will, in this description of love. So I, you know, I raise the question, why? Why would he focus on that? rather than what it is. Why the contrast? Why the focus on the isn'ts? I would begin by saying this, uh, and I hope this doesn't ruin anyone's wedding memories, but Paul was not writing a sermon for a wedding when he wrote this. He wasn't trying to be beautiful or romantic or eloquent, but rather Paul's actually exhorting. He's calling to change this church. He's uh, correcting this church in Corinth in their brokenness and in their division as he writes these words about love. And what Paul's doing is he's turning their focus back to the core of who it is that they're called to be in Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us and you've been paying attention through this letter, it becomes clear that some in this church are envious. Some of them are boasting. Some of them are very much dishonoring one another. They are self-seeking. In fact, if you'll remember uh, in chapter 10, I I've brought this up a number of times because this quark man really has guided the rest of the letter. What does Paul have to say? No one should seek their own good but the good of others. They are seeking their own good. They're self-seeking. If you'll remember, when Paul wrote this, it's in response to this reality that from their view, they, they said, we have the right to do anything. We have the right to do what we want. But Paul has to remind them, yes, but not everything's beneficial and not everything's constructive. And then he gives this idea. Start seeking the good of others instead of yourself. They were self-seeking. It seems as we read through this letter that they were easily angered, that they were keeping a record of wrongs, that they were in fact at times even delighting in evil. So this passage is in fact written to correct the source of the division within their church, which also I would say is the source of division in any church. Wherever there's division, what's lacking is love. They fail to understand the character of God's love, and so they're failing to represent that love towards one another. Forget the rest of the world. They aren't even doing this with one another very well. They're living in the isn'ts, not the is's. So as I think about that, I think, how can that be? Like, what, what is so broken in a church that this becomes the reality? When the reason for our celebrating, the reason for our gathering is the hope we have because of God's love for us. Jesus, who gave his life as we just remembered to pay the penalty of our sin. Jesus, who calls his followers to love one another as he has loved us. This is our core calling, to love one another. In fact, Jesus in John 13 says, this is how people will know you are my followers, that you love one another. So then how can it be that this this church can get this off course? I don't have to think about that very long and, and realize it wasn't just Corinth. It wasn't just then, right? In fact, I find myself rather tragically asking the same question far too often lately when I listen to the public and very loud voices that claim to speak for Christianity. Tragically, as a pastor, I've had far too many moments in the past 18 years of watching people who, who I think desire to follow Jesus hold on to grudges, try to overpower each other, ignore the needs of one another, fail to show patience or kindness and sometimes dishonoring one another with our words. And so the question comes, how can this be? How do we end up there? You know, we've seen in this letter to Corinth that they've done some crazy things. They've endorsed at times sexual immorality. They're greedy. They're even flirting with idolatry. And this is a direct result, if you pay attention to this letter, it's a direct result of their pride and this belief that they have the real knowledge so that they can shout down the fake knowledge. They know better. This outward religious look to them in this no-better attitude. And so they end up focusing on these outward public expressions of spiritualness. Okay, That's, in fact, chapter 12 through 14, that's what it's dealing with. All the while, there's this struggle for power that's taking place in their church as they're trying to believe and represent as their spiritual people. It seems they think this thing so long as they're showing spiritual things in their lives, like even prophesying, speaking, you know, the words of God, knowing all the mysteries of God, having superior knowledge, showing these great acts of faith and speaking in tongues and doing all these seemingly spiritual things, then that proves out that they're spiritual people. They're good. This is, in fact, why we have 1 Corinthians 13. That's why this is written. To speak to that kind of situation. To speak directly at this misguided idea that Christianity can be shown in any other manner than in love. And so, as Paul unpacks this, we see clearly that love is not an idea. Love isn't just a motivation motivation for a certain kind of behavior. Love is action, and love is, in fact, behavior. I would say any poetic expression of love in words without actions, in fact, isn't even love. It's just hollow words. Often we see these hollow, empty, sometimes loud words that are empty expressions of a lifeless faith. And it gets masked by religious activity so We might think we're good when we're in that place, when we're not. We do well to consider this morning. I do well, you do well. We're all in this, right? If our lives, that is our values expressed through our behaviors and our actions are defined more by the ises or by the isn'ts of love, we can convince ourselves, I can convince myself through seemingly spiritual activity that I'm good, right? But I want us to hear the words that precede these poetic lines that we love so much on love. This is going back to uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, which by the way would be pretty cool, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have such a faith... I can move mountains, but I do not have love. I'm nothing. Paul writes verse three. If I give all I possess to the poor, even if I give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I was trying to figure out how to put this in kind of language we're closer to. And I think, you know, if I preach a great message, teach an awesome Bible study, lead a powerful set of music at church, if I have my Bible memorized, my theology tight, and I don't love, it's a gong show. That's all it is. It doesn't matter. It's just noise. If I'm brilliant, full of knowledge, even no better than everyone else, and people use my great acts of faith as their sermon illustrations on Sunday morning, if I don't have love, There's nothing great about that. There's nothing to brag about, nothing to be excited about. Even if I'm the biggest giver at church, if I'm the example of generosity, if I'm the person that'll do what nobody else will do, I do stuff all the time, but I don't have love, it just doesn't gain anything. It does no good. If love isn't the driving force of what we do, if it doesn't define us in our behaviors, in our actions, then it just doesn't matter what we do. It really doesn't. Paul's that direct. He's that black and white on this. It isn't getting stuff done that matters. It isn't being right that matters. It's this consistent expression of love through our behavior that matters. And it isn't that it's a choice between these activities or love, but rather it's that we do these things out of love. It's what's driving the engine. Otherwise, it ends up being so often self-seeking, doesn't it? In fact, unless my votiv- motivation is the good of others, my actions and outpoint of love, it just doesn't matter a whole lot what I do. In fact, in that sense, my ethical life kind of amounts to zero. I could be a super moral person, but if I don't love other people, that doesn't mean much. Right. And seeing this understanding or this misunderstanding taking place, Paul speaks first to this necessity of love. And then as we saw, he describes the nature of love. Again, I I don't know that we could hear this too many times, even though we're familiar with it. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. And it always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. John writes that we love because God first loved us. As I said earlier, Jesus said that No greater love has one than they lay down their life for a friend. And he didn't just say it, he actually did it. Because if it was just words, it wouldn't have mattered a whole lot. But he gave us the example. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, again, we may be familiar with this, but Jesus has just blown his disciples' minds by taking this very humble role of a servant and washing their feet, which, by the way, I think is kind of gross. And then he says this. He says, a new command I give you. But you should stop there because this is not a new command. You can find plenty of places before this point where there's a command to love one another. But now he's defining it in a bigger way. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. He raises the bar pretty significantly, right? And he doesn't stop there. As I mentioned earlier, verse 35, it's by this that, that everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. I don't want to pick on the loud voices, but if you want to pay attention and see if any of those loud voices that claim to be the voice of Christianity are following Jesus, just look, are they loving? Because if they're not, it just doesn't matter. They're making noise. Same is true for me. It seems same, same true for you. We're all in this, right? Our calling is to be patient and to be kind, to set aside all boasting and pride and even the envy that we might have of what others have. Our calling is to honor those around us, to honor others, to see the good of others before our own. Our calling is to move beyond anger, to burn up that record of wrongs that often we kind of keep in a drawer for, you know, safekeeping to pull out when it's handy. And actually, I think we have to keep shredding that thing every time it comes up, right? It's, it's easy, isn't it, to start re-recording the wrongs sometimes in the difficult relationships we have. Love doesn't do that. Love gets rid of that record, expunges it. Love, our calling is to rejoice with one another in the truth, to protect, to trust, to hope, to believe the best. And then there's that word persevere, right? The word persevere suggests this takes work, that it's hard. The idea of perseverance is to continue to do something that's difficult over and over and over and over and to consistently keep doing that. Love perseveres. It isn't just a one time thing, it's hard and it's always going to be hard to maintain. I think that's why, yes, the question how, how can this be in the church? Because it's really easy to stop persevering in love, it's really easy to let up. But I can't underscore enough. That this is our calling. This isn't part of what we do. This is who we are in Christ. This is our calling. That we are defined by love in a way that's different. This is what actually matters. And if it's not there, everything else is just largely noise. On that note, we, we likely miss the impact. If we go back to verse 1. When Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a claiming symbol. By the way, a large aspect of what's being addressed in chapters 12 through 14 is an issue around this idea of speaking in tongues, which, you know, sometimes for us is kind of hard to unpack. I would say this. It's really easy to understand why that would be a big deal. If you go back, what? how did the church start? What was the first obvious massive expression of the spirit at work in the followers of Christ. They spoke in tongues. And so you can understand this would be something a church would hold on to in those early days, that this is what identifies us as actually spiritual people. It was a big deal to them. But Paul says, if you're doing that, which by the way is a pretty obvious manifestation of the spirit at work, since if you're doing that a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. Now, that term for resounding gong, it it literally means um, echoing bronze. It's not really clear what that refers to. It's likely one of two things. It's either referring to when, when a rhetorician, a public speaker would get up and their words were hollow, there'd be this loud scoffing. Just this angry crowd noise, right? It's probably that, or it could be referring to this um, natural amplification that came in the way that amphitheaters were built. By the way, if if you ever get the chance to go back to any of these ancient cities and you stand on the stage in the right place in these amphitheaters that still exist, it's really crazy how your voice bounces back at you, the way it's built. So it's probably either referring to that or to this loud, angry crowd noise. But that other term the clanging symbol is really specific. It speaks to something that many of these Corinthian believers know all too well. This is a noise very clearly associated with pagan worship rituals. Rituals which many of them came from in their former life. Paul's comparing their spiritual activity devoid of love to those sounds of pagan worship really really harsh comparison in other words Paul's saying your religious activity may sound great to you but what we hear sounds like pagan worship much more than anything that reflects the one true living god if there's not love there that's what it is and so after speaking on the necessity of love and the nature or the character of love paul finishes his thoughts in this chapter in this way if we read on again love never fails You are never going to waste your time loving people, by the way. I don't know that you'll regret that. You may be hurt by that, but there's still value in loving people even when it isn't returned. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. Again, he's writing to specific things they value. Uh, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I talked. Like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put away the childish ways. For now we see only uh, a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, and even as I am fully known. And he says this, and now these three remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. He's saying that all of these outward visible expressions of their spirituality and their religion are going to pass away. They aren't going to last. And in verse 11, when Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. He's speaking of their loveless words and behavior. This prideful knowledge, this self-seeking reasoning that seems to be driving their actions. And this idea, by the way, should actually sound familiar. If you go back to chapter 3, this is what Paul wrote. He wrote to them saying, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. By the way, they really saw themselves as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Why? You're still worldly. What's that look like? There's jealousy, there's quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? In other words, you're acting like kids, is what Paul's saying here. I can't give you the things of mature people because you're still acting like infants. Definitely isn't holding back in this letter, is he? In spiritual terms, this is what it looks like to talk as a child, to think as a child, to reason as a child, is to live in this way that thinks Maybe I'm something big because I did something, or or to mistreat people and to miss this core calling we have in Christ, which is to love those around us. And Paul says that when we get mature, those things are left behind. At some point, we grow up in love, and it causes us to think different, to talk different, to behave differently. And what does he say remains? It's not our great accomplishments. It's not our words. It's faith, it's hope, and it's love. And he says, but the greatest of these is love. The best, the one thing that matters most. They'll call it the most excellent way is love. It's love. Again, what does that look like? What doesn't that look like? Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, love does not boast, it is not proud. Love doesn't dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love isn't easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, but love rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love is always more important than being right. Love is always more important than being right. Love is always more important than being productive and getting stuff done. That one's maybe a little hard for some of us uh, in our culture where our value is based in productivity so often. Love is more important than being efficient. It's more important than getting things accomplished. Why? This goes back to our calling. This is what you and I were created for in Genesis, when we read that we were created in the very image or likeness of God, it was to walk in relationship with God. And as we did that, that idea of being created in God's image was that we would represent God's goodness and, in fact, reflect His love. And so when we talk about this idea of the fall of sin, what's damaged is it breaks our relationship with God, but it also tarnishes our ability to represent God's goodness, and it it shatters if you will, that reflection of God's love in our lives. The very things we were created for. And so it makes sense then to understand that when Jesus gave his life on the cross for our sin and was raised back to life, showing that he had power over sin and death and in fact power to give the life that he had promised. Not only does Jesus' death on the cross restore our relationship with God, but it also gives us a new capacity To represent God's goodness and even more to reflect God's love. That is our calling in this life we have in Christ. This is the life we're to live in Christ. Again, it's not being right. It's not knowing better. It's not just having a superior morality. Goodness and love are inseparable. And Jesus again said the defining characteristic of his followers would be our love for one another, that is what's to divine us. John goes on uh, to say this. This is in First John chapter four, verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. It's a really strong words. Because God is love. Verse nine. This is how God showed His love among us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him that we might live through him this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins dear friends since god so loved us we ought to love one another Again, how has he defined that word love so far? It's a pretty big definition. And then he says this. This is remarkable. Verse 12, which isn't going to come on the screen because I didn't include it. it. Hopefully you got your Bibles out. He says, no one has ever seen God, but. So he's comparing these ideas. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In roughly a four-page letter, by the way, John uses the word love at least 35 times. Kind of a big deal. If you'll notice the logic of that verse 12, no one has seen God, but we love one another. The idea is when we love one another, God is seen in us. And that's when God is seen in us. God lives in us and his love is visible and made complete in our new life in Christ Jesus when we're walking in that love we're called to. And so our calling is to live lives that are defined by love. That people will know us, as we used to sing that song, by our love, right? They'll know we're Christians by our love. Man, if that was the case today. That our actions would be driven by love. Because that's what we were created for. And that's the life we're saved into in Christ Jesus. This life of love. And here's the thing. It's hard work. It's hard work. Why were the Corinthians divided? Because this is hard work. Did they want to become divided? Did they want to become prideful and arrogant? Did they want to be puffed up in their knowledge? Probably not, but this is hard work. And when we don't consistently persevere in this, this is where we end up. It's hard work. It will always be difficult and costly to love. But if loving, that is putting others before ourselves and our actions and our values and our behaviors and our words is actually what it looks like to follow Jesus, then apart from that defining characteristic of love, anything else we do is just a bunch of noise. It's a bunch of noise. Our high calling is this radical love that's long-suffering. that's patient, that's generous towards one another. And that love is critical for our unity because if it's missing, we will become divided. And wherever we're divided, we'll probably find it's missing. It's also critical for our witness because largely it is our witness. The way we love one another is how we actually show the gospel. So some questions. These aren't easy. I've been rattling with these. First is this. To what extent do I believe that God loves me? I'm still growing in this. You probably are too. And the reason for that is so much of what we experience as love is transactional. It's I'll love you if or I'll love you when. Rather than just I love you because I love you, which is the way God's love works. His love isn't a deserved or earned love. It's a given love. To what extent this morning do you believe that God loves you? I've shared before part of why I went overseas to try to be a missionary is I thought God would love me more if I did that. And it sounds silly, but don't we get caught in that trap sometimes that if I just stepped away from that addiction or if I just got better at this or I could just do this, then God would love me more. That's not how it works. Do you understand this morning the extent of God's love for you in Christ? Because if we don't have that, we're probably going to miss the rest. We've got to be growing in this, and understanding the magnitude of God's love. Which isn't, is most challenging for me. There's a few of them in there. I'll be honest, the keeping record of wrongs is probably one of the harder ones for me. I forget everything else, but for some reason I can always remember that, right? Which isn't is most challenging for you, I wonder. What behaviors, what words and attitudes in my life are lacking in love? We've got to address these, friends, because those are distracting noise that pull us away from what actually matters. Without saying anything political, I'll just say very clearly, do we see this as missing right now? <laughs> if you've paid any attention to what's going on in our country, in our world right now, do we see that love is missing? That the rest just doesn't matter if it's not there? That it's all broken? So in my life, in my behaviors, in my attitudes, in my words, where am I lacking in love? And then pointing at the finger at somebody, somebody else, Where where do I need to grow? And in that, here's two questions. First of all, what's one fairly easy change I can make? Because it probably is one. There's probably something that's actually not that hard that would be a step this morning for you and I to grow in love. And this is a really good question to sit in and and to pray over. What's one easy thing that I could do that would really help my life be more defined by love? Maybe it's practicing patience. Maybe it's being generous. Maybe it's being kind. What's what's a, a fairly easy change that I can make? And then here's the other one. And I would actually maybe rephrase this. What's a hard thing that God would, would invite me towards? You know, what, what's that thing that seems to just pop up and I can't seem to deal with it? One of those isn't. Can we be praying and trusting that God would transform us in those things and commit to intentionally move in a different direction? Because this is our calling. This is where the rubber hits the road. It isn't anything else. Close with some words on the screen that you probably know. This is our definition. God loves the world so much that he gave Jesus that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't say, here's a new list of things you have to do. Here's the way you can be religious enough. Here's the way to earn it. He gave Jesus. I hope you understand that this morning. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 17, it says that he didn't come to condemn the world. But to say that that's what God's love looks like. And that's what we're called to. So, Before I pray, I just want to ask a question. As you look around, can you recognize that you love one another? As I thought about that, that's an intentional act maybe we could do more often as we come together in worship is just to look around the room and just go, yeah, I love that person. Yeah, I love him or her. Yeah, they, I might be a little irritated lately. I'm going to put that aside and I love that person, right? That's how we grow in this. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us a greater capacity this morning as we've asked to understand and to grasp the magnitude of your love for us in Christ. God, if we haven't, would you help us to just receive that love with joy, to receive the forgiveness that you've promised in Christ, and to step into this new life that you've called us to? God, would you help us to see the behaviors the sort of learned, repeated words and attitudes that we allow ourselves to fall into that just don't show love. Would you help us to see those and would you give us the obedience, the wisdom to start moving away from those things? Not because we want to be better people, but because we want to represent you. And we want to love one another more fully. I would ask that you would continue to transform us into a group of people that truly are defined by our love for one another? Would you continue to show us what that looks like, what that means, how we get there? Again, that we may reflect your love as a group of people following Jesus. That may we may be easily identifiable as followers of Jesus because of the way we love one another. We ask your spirit to be it work in us in this manner. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.